0: It has been said, I would rather have eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, lips that cannot speak, than a heart that cannot love. The Apostle Paul wrote a couple of years before he died that the desired outcome of all that he had taught over the course of his ministry was love. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love has been defined as willing the highest and the best for another. And that's not bad, I don't think. Love is an emotion, but it's more than just an emotion. It's one of those things that may be hard to define, but we know it when we see it. Or at least, most of us know it when we see it or when we experience it. But at the same time, one's view of love can be influenced either positively or, unfortunately, negatively negatively. By past experience. Some people, unfortunately, because of their past, view love through a distorted lens. Over the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians, we've seen a church that's in deep trouble. It was marked by pride and selfishness, which had led to disunity, which had resulted in many different problems in the church, problems that have been outlined In the first 12 chapters, and Paul will continue with the problems in chapter 14. The the problems range from lawsuits against one another, silly lawsuits that could have been settled if people would have just sat down and talked with each other, to a lax attitude towards sexual immorality in the church, and then even something as horrible as abusing the Lord's table because of their pride and selfishness and the disunity. They were a model of a dysfunctional church. In spite of the fact that the Apostle Paul had personally ministered to them. Sometimes we think, well, if I would have sat on the Apostle Paul's ministry, then I'd be a different person. Well, guess what? You have his letters. And sometimes it changes us, and sometimes it doesn't. The Corinthians had him personally, and it didn't seem to have done them much good, at least up until this point. Now, have no fear. We're going to study, after this, we'll study 2 Corinthians, and we'll see that they did make some changes after 1 Corinthians. Maybe not as many as they should have. But they're at least going to be on their way. But now, in the midst of this section between 12, chapters 12 and 14, a discussion of how they were abusing spiritual gifts, Paul introduces the solution, not just to the spiritual gift problem, but to the entirety of the Corinthian problem. That's why chapter 12 finished, and I will show you a more excellent way. In other words, there's things you're doing that need to be changed. I'm going to show you something better. And isn't that what we all want? We want something better. We want it God's way. If the root of this problem, which was tearing this church apart, was pride and selfishness, then a radical change was in order. It didn't this need to be tweaked. There needed to be a radical overhaul in Corinth. And the opposite of pride and selfishness would be humility and love. And that's what they needed Jesus said, actually right before he was crucified, within 24 hours of his crucifixion, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Somewhere along the line, that concept had been lost on the Corinthian Christians. Selfishness is the polar opposite of love. A church that operates on selfishness rather than love, and you can't have both. You can't be selfish and loving at the same time. It's either or. Any church that operates on selfishness will not have a positive testimony for Jesus Christ in their community. And they won't have a positive testimony even among themselves. At the point in, this, in which this letter was written, mid-50s of the first century, the Corinthian church was wasting an extremely important opportunity that they had to minister to a community that desperately needed their help. By their infighting, they were blowing it. And Paul's been leading up to this chapter for the entirety of the letter. You might remember that they had set up a false system or a false hierarchy when it came to spiritual gifts. In their minds, the more sensational of the spiritual gifts were the more important of the spiritual gifts. And specifically, if one had, say, for example, the gift of tongues, then they were at the top of the hierarchy when it came to spirituality. If someone had, say, a gift of helps, then perhaps they were at the bottom. And Paul's going to tell them this vertical hierarchy is for the birds. It needs to be turned on its side. There needs to be a horizontal view of spiritual gifts. They're all important. Every one of them is necessary. But the false system wasn't an accident. When a church is governed by selfishness and pride and the resulting disunity, what are we to expect? That's what's going to happen is there will be, there will develop a pecking order in a church. So the false system was a direct result of the selfishness. And Paul has got to correct that before this church in Corinth, or by extension any church, is going to have the testimony for Jesus Christ that they're supposed to have. You see, a church, I believe, I've always believed this, a church needs to grow from the inside out. Individual believers need to grow with respect to their relationship with Jesus Christ. And then that growth is expanded out to other believers, both in that local church and then out into the community. I've never believed in the reverse of the model. The reverse model is more popular today. But that's the biblical model. Each individual believer grows and loves, and that love is so addictive... That love is so attractive that by, by your love, they'll know that you're my disciples. People don't know that we're disciples of Jesus Christ because of the clothes that we wear or our verbiage. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people out there are very turned off by Christian verbiage. They've been burned by Christian verbiage. We can call them brother and sister this or that. Peace be with you, my brother. But then if we don't treat them in love, it's all hollowness. It comes across as hypocrisy. And I'm going to tell you something, the world doesn't care for hypocrisy. The world can see right through hypocrisy. Just like it was a clean window. Our responsibility is to love, and that in Corinth, it's going to solve a multitude of problems. In Houston, it'll solve a multitude of problems. Watch, we can be in the word every day for 60 years and if we don't have love, we're nothing. And that's what Paul is going to let us know. Without love, we're nothing. Because love's the ultimate application of everything we're supposed to be learning. Everything that we learn, the ultimate application should be love. In verses 1 through 7, these are verses you've heard so many times before. If you've attended a wedding in the last 30 days, I'm sure you've heard these words. I use it in weddings that I perform. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly it does not seek its own it is not provoked it does not take into account a wrong suffered it does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things now, there's a greek word agape that's found many times in this paragraph it's the greek word for love that's used in these verses It's a word that was not widely used outside of the Greek New Testament. Now, the verb was widely used, but not this noun. There were other Greek terms that were more widely used in a culture like Corinth. Eros was one. Philos was another one. Outside of the New Testament, this concept wasn't widely known or even respected. Now, that's going to be a key to understanding what Paul's doing here. I don't try to give you trivial information. That's, that's a key to understanding why he's doing this and why the Corinthians have such a problem. Because I would guess that if we would have entered that church in Corinth before they received this letter, or before perhaps they had read chapter 13, and we would have pulled the Corinthian believers, and we would have said, Are you guys a loving church? They would have said, Absolutely, we're a loving church. If you would have pulled them apart individually, said, are you a loving person? they said, Oh, of course I'm a loving person. But if you got them to describe what their view of love was... We're going to find it's nothing like what Paul's view of love is as it, as it is expressed here. By the way, the New Testament really doesn't define love for us. I've had people do that to me. Define love. You think you know love. Define love. It's a difficult thing to do. Love is one of those concepts that we just know innately. The problem with knowing it innately is that we can have our view of love very skewed early in life. If we have, and many people do, fathers, that, for example, didn't love the child. That, from, the, from, the, from day one, skews that person's view of what a loving father is all about. That's why they have a skewed view of God sometimes. If you see your mom and dad not getting along in marriage, you have a skewed view of what marriage should be like and what love should look like in marriage. That's what I mean by some of us view love through a cloudy lens. Agape, the Greek term that Paul uses, agape is an emotion But it's not just an emotion. It's also an act of the will. It's willing the best for someone else. There may be a time in our expression of love when the emotional component might be minimal. It'll still be there, but it might be minimal depending on the particular situation. But agape or agape love always desires the highest and the best for someone else. Not for ourselves, for someone else. It's selfless, not selfish. And if the primary problem in Corinth was selfishness, is it any wonder that Paul, when he comes to the great application chapter in the letter to the Corinthians, makes it all about the opposite of selfishness. It's about selflessness. That's what agape is all about, selflessness. Selflessness. So Paul is correcting a faulty view of love that they had. They lived in a culture that had a distorted view of love. The Corinthian concept of love would have been heavily influenced by another Greek term that was also translated into English love. They had three three or perhaps even four terms for love. Their concept of love would have been more along the lines of the Greek term eros, E-R-O-S. It's where we get our English term erotic. The term was used primarily for physical or sexual intimacy. That's the Corinthian view of love. It was the Roman view of love, too. That's why in Rome, when people talked about the love feasts, the Roman pagans assumed that that meant Christians were having orgies in their Sunday morning church services. Because in their mind, that's what love was. They didn't have this idea of a selfless love. Not in those cultures, so now when we see that, when we see that the Corinthian idea was more of a physical attraction, or even sexual intimacy when they used the word love, now Paul comes up and uses this word agape, which is a cousin to be sure, but he's going to say, no, that's not what I'm talking about when it comes to the application of everything that I've taught. The application of everything I've taught is not Eros, he might have had a PS, are you out of your mind? It's agape. Totally different. One's spiritual health is directly proportional to one's love for God and one's love for our fellow believer. It's been my observation, quite frankly, that many of us are quite happy to fulfill the first of those mandates. We want to say, I love God. But when it comes to loving God's children, it's not necessarily the highest thing on our list. But that's not the way it works. First John chapter 4 verse 20. The apostle says if someone says I love God but hates his neighbor, he's a liar. For one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Did you hear that? We can't have it that way. We can't say I love God. We can't say our souls are so full of this theology that I'm a God lover. But then we treat our fellow human being like trash. It doesn't work that way. And that goes, by the way, for outside the church and inside the church too. So we, we try to get around it. I know how we all think. I think this way sometimes too. And we say, okay, I'll love them just so long as it doesn't inconvenience me. Which is just another way of saying, I'll love my neighbor... Just so long as it costs me nothing. Be happy to fulfill that mandate. But just don't let it cost me anything. I'll love them, but they sure as heck better not get my parking place or drink my coffee or, heaven forbid, take the last of the donuts. <laughs> you know, we laugh and I laugh, but a few years ago, several years back, a homeless man came in here and he was hungry and he had a handful of donuts in both hands. And it irritated the heck out of some folks here. The reason I know it irritated the heck out of some folks is I heard about it all morning long. But I left that day feeling good because at the end of the day, once people realized why he had taken a couple handfuls of donuts, the fact he was hungry. And for the rest of us, it's just a little added treat that we feel guilty about later when we eat those calories. But for him, that was breakfast. And I saw two separate people Come up to him and whisper to him and slip him, I think, a 20 or some other denomination and say, hey, listen, after you're finished here, why don't you go get yourself a nice lunch? I even know someone, the next week that that fellow came, invited him to lunch, even though he was a homeless man. Took him to a restaurant down here. Took him to a cafeteria. Let him get whatever he wanted. They say, that's love. That's love. Now, he might not have wanted him riding in his car. Of course, that guy's car wasn't that clean, <laughs> because I know him. But let's just assume his car was clean. He might not have wanted him riding in this car, but he let him. Who do you think God was most happy with at those particular moments? I mean, it's fairly transparent, isn't it? Now listen, we all have our moments. I'm not pointing fingers here. I have mine just like you have yours. None of us is without guilt in this area. And I just bring that up because it's something we can kind of chuckle about, but they're much more serious ones. I don't like to be inconvenienced any more than you do. I don't like to wait five minutes at the restaurant. That tests me. We all fail in this area. But this is something that we've got to get right. If we're ever going to mature individually in this spiritual life, and isn't that what we want to do? If we're ever going to mature individually, and if we're ever going to have the kind of testimony for Jesus Christ that we're supposed to have as a church, we've got to love our scripture reading this morning. I hope you were listening carefully. We know love by this. And again, this is not a definition, but this is the Apostle John's description, that he laid down his life for us. Need he go any further? But he does. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, the reality is, apart from police officers and those who are in the military or some of the stories I heard out of Colorado over the weekend, I know stories will will change and the facts are going to come out later, but but at least as of right now, they're saying that at least three boyfriends threw themselves in front of this man to save their girlfriends. I'm sure that when they went to the movie that night, they had no expectation that their love would be tested in that way. Most of us are not going to be tested by having to literally lay down our life. So John knows that. And he goes further. And he hits us where it hurts because we will be in this situation. But whosoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but indeed in deed and truth. To be crass, let us put our money where our mouth is. Let's put our time where our mouth is. Let's put our compassion where our mouth is. Now, it's interesting here. A moment ago, I told you that agape, first and foremost, is willing the highest and best for another. So it's a decision. But I also said it's also an emotion. And the reason I say that is not just because of some philosophical discussion, which a lot of discussions on love are just philosophical. But biblically, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, this love is described as, or the, the function is described as, whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. Now, that Greek word for heart, you would expect it to be cardia. That's where we get the word cardiology from. But that's not the word that John used there. He used the Greek term "splanknon." And splanknon was different from cardia. Splanknon is an emotional word. And what John's saying is really profound. If I see someone in need and my heart tells me I should help that person, that's what my heart is motivating me to do. And I close up my heart against him. Now, the heart there, splanknon, is the Greek term for emotion. I close up my emotion against him. Then how does God's love dwell in me? And the point is, if you go back to the first part of that verse, he says, this is how we know love. We know love by this, that Christ died as our substitute. When God saw our need, and in a sense, you could say he had the world's goods. He's the only one that can meet this need. He saw our need, and he didn't shut up his heart toward us. What in the world are we doing seeing the need of someone else that we can meet? Now, that's the key thing. We behold the need, and we can meet it, and we shut up our heart against them. John's saying, the love of God doesn't dwell in us. Now, I need to make a quick P.S., and I do it every time I teach that passage. I've got to say that Satan has done a brilliant thing in this world. And he has got a whole industry out there of people who make quite a living begging on the street corners. There was an article on Drudge Report yesterday about a man makes $60,000 on the street corners begging for money. What's happened is Satan has perverted the system. And I don't know what the real answer to all this is. I know what they told us at Dallas Seminary the first day I was there. The head of security got up and he said, listen, to all you new guys, there are people that are going to hit you up for money every day right outside the seminary over here. And the man said, I know you're going to think I'm a horrible, but please don't give them any money. And we did think he was horrible. You know, we just came to seminary. We're supposed to be loving one another. He said, no, no, no. It would not be loving them to give it to them because these guys have been here for years. They go out and they spend it on crack cocaine or crystal meth or, or whatever it is that they're spending it on. It's actually hurting them, you giving them the money. So please don't give it to them. It would not be an act of love. Now, I got that. But how do we know that the guy on the street corner or the girl on the street, street corner doesn't really need the money, that there's no other way they could get it? It's hard. I'll tell you a personal example. There's, there's a lady. She stands on the street corner over the East Campus. I passed by her every day, or did. And finally, one day, there was a particularly long light. She was sitting there. I was the only one with the light. She came and knocked on the window. I was a little startled, and I rolled the window down. She said, hey, why don't you ever give me any money? And I was a bit startled. I was hoping the light would change, but it didn't. And I said, well, i got to tell you the truth. I, I said, listen, I've seen you out here. Every day for years. It almost seems like this is your job. And I really question what's going on here because I see the other guy over there, and it's, I see you all talking to each other, and it seems like you all work in a team. And, she's, and without me pro- probing at all, she said, yeah, I, I, use the, I use this money to buy drugs. I use this money to buy drugs. But I have a job, and I use, I use the money that I get from my job to, to uh, buy, pay for my house. And I said, well, that's great. I I appreciate that, but I'm not giving you any money because I'm not giving you money to go buy drugs. That wouldn't be the loving thing. Then the light changed and I sped off as quick as I could and she gave me a bad look for the next year while she stood there. (laughs) But what I found out later, it's almost a company. They they all live in the same house. They all have their appointed routes that they take every day. And believe me, I'm not trying to be not compassionate. I think the way that Christians are, if we knew for sure that that person really was hungry and needed a meal, we would stop and give them everything we have in our wallet, wouldn't we? But it's not the loving thing to do to, to be purposely taking advantage of either. You know, so, so I know it's hard, and my only answer, I gave the first pastor's conference I ever did in Omaha, Nebraska, a long time ago. This was my passage. This is one that I had been assigned and what I told them is what I'll tell you now. I don't know what the answer to that is. I know this, though. I know that the Holy Spirit knows what the answer is. And I say, make sure you're walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit as you're driving, as you're doing whatever it is you do. And if the Holy Spirit compels you to give money to them, give money to them. But if not, don't. You have to be wise. So I, I add that postscript here. I don't want to make you feel guilty when you pass the same person out here on the street corner every Sunday. Because for some of it, it is their job. And Satan's done a wonderful job of perverting the whole system. It's one of the reasons why we give to the Star of Hope mission here in Houston because we know that at least that part of our responsibility as a church is being fulfilled. Because we do want to help the poor. And we do want to make sure people have full stomachs when they go to bed. How horrible it would be to live in Houston and go to bed on an empty stomach because you couldn't afford to eat. So we know, love, by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and yet closes his splatchnon, closes up his emotion against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the application, let's don't just talk about it, let's do it. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's again John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16-18. through 18. Again, Paul says in chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak... With the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love. I have become a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. Most commentators, certain I certainly agree with them, that the reason Paul brings up tongues first is that this is the gift that they had placed at the top of their hierarchy when it came to spiritual gifts. There's a lot of controversy over this, but he is not saying. Hear me well, please. He's not saying that speaking in tongues was equivalent to speaking in an angelic language. He's speaking hyperbolically here, and what he's asserting is that even if I could speak, not just in human languages, which tongues were, they were recognizable human languages, but even if I could not just speak in human languages with the gift of tongues, but even if I could speak with the tongues of angels, but if I did that apart from love, i have just become a shrill noise. It's not beautiful at all. It would just be a shrill noise. That's a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The conclusion is the giftedness without love is not fulfilling the function for which the gift was intended. Now, he's specifically speaking about tongues here, but I've got to tell you, that goes for every spiritual gift out there, every one of them. If it's operating apart from love, it is not fulfilling the function for which the gift was intended. Then in verse 2, and if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm going to talk a little bit more about knowledge and and prophecy in next week's lesson because it's central. But what we have is three more gifts here that were treasured by the Corinthians. Perhaps these were the next three on their list. I don't know. Very, Very probably. But without the function of love, prophecy was nothing the person who who exercised the gift of prophecy was nothing or perhaps paul is saying something like you think you're something special just because you have that particular gift well i've got to tell you corinthians god begs to differ apart from the function of love we're nothing well then he's going to really hit home in verse three Because of the passage I just read you, whosoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. You remember that passage just a few seconds ago? We might get the idea that, okay, all I have to do is give to feed the poor, and I've exercised my responsibility. Not so fast. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Guess what? Motivation matters. Have you ever done something you thought was really good, but you really didn't have the attitude behind it, and people saw through it? Maybe you got your wife a really, really nice gift for her birthday, but, but you just remembered that morning it was her birthday. You didn't really pay any attention to her all day, but you brought her home a really nice gift. Well, here, I got you the gift. What does she want more than the gift? She wanted the thought behind it, right? Well, guess what? The thought behind it does matter, biblically. And even if I gave all of my possessions away, and even if I did the ultimate, which is actually the reverse order of what John says in 1 John 4, did you catch that? But even if I gave all my possessions away, even if I gave my body to be burned, in other words, I sacrificed my very life for you, if I did it for the wrong motivation... It's not going to profit me anything, nothing. That's a real eye-opener. I know of a businessman here locally who I will not name. I know people that, that are here today that have worked for him, and that's how I know this story. But this man is known for giving a tremendous amount of charity away in the Houston community. But what I've been told, and I have witnessed this now that they pointed it out to me, this man will not give away a dime until the television cameras are running They'll go out to an event. He'll wait to present the check until Channel 13 gets there and the cameras are on. You see, for him, the motivation behind the gift wasn't strictly benevolence. The motivation behind the gift was advertising. And he's upfront about that with his employees, not with the public. Well, guess what? You might get good advertising out of that. And he's well known as a philanthropist here in Houston. But as far as God's concerned, it profits him nothing as far as God's concerned. Now, the community might be fooled, but God's not fooled. I want you to notice the progression there. In verse 1, giftedness without love is not fulfilling the function for which the gift was intended. And then in verse 2, one is not special just because they possess or have been given a certain spiritual gift. It must function in love or the person with the gift is nothing. That's pretty strong. And in verse 3, even self-sacrifice, if done without the proper motivation, brings no spiritual profit. So that's the way he opens up the solution for the Corinthians. It's a pretty strong way to open it up. Especially the, it profits me nothing, I am nothing. Psychologists wouldn't like the Apostle Paul saying that today. They said that would probably be bad for people's self-esteem. The Apostle Paul wants to get to the point because too much is at stake in Corinth with their particular behavior. Now, the description from love of love in verses 4-7. through 7, I, must, I must say this, even though I do it too. I use this in almost every wedding that I perform. But the context of this passage is not a wedding. The context of this facet, passage is selfishness and pride leading to disunity in a church. This is a church passage here. And it's also, again, to remind you, this is a correction of the Corinthian view of what love would be like. Their view of love was eros. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the view. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about agape. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek his own. Now, in my Bible, I have that one highlighted because I think that's central. That goes right after the selfishness. It's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient. And that pretty much goes without saying. I was at a restaurant last night with my family. The poor little sweet door hostess couldn't get it right. She kept taking people in front of me. It wouldn't even even keep a list. She was just doing it all in her head. Since I am not patient generally, so I'm not loving when it comes to that. I mean, this is... It was so ironic. As I'm getting upset with this dear, sweet little girl, I mean, she's just doing her job. I'm thinking, I'm fixing to preach on this tomorrow, so I might as well come clean. Because one of these days, that little girl's going to show up in the church and say, He is not loving. But love's patient. Love would recognize that, listen, her little machine was broken, and all the things that she usually gives out weren't there. Love would have recognized that the manager was back in the back hiding instead of helping her out. And that I've been to that restaurant many times, that they had at least, they were short at least two people on the front desk there. Love would have been patient. And eventually I got it right, but not at first. I'm not preaching to you. This this is for all of us. This hits me first, and then it hits you. Just in terms of timing. Love's patient, love's kind. That also ought to go without saying. If we find ourselves being harsh or unkind, that's not love. In this church, they weren't being kind to one another when they were suing each other over issues that could have easily been settled if they would have just sat down and talked. They weren't kind when they were, some of them were taking the communion service before others, shutting out a portion of the congregation. That's not kindness. Love is not jealous. Anthony Thistleton, the New Testament scholar, translated it this way, Love does not burn with envy. And this is, I think, also related to the central problem of selfishness. Now, the whole thing of jealousy sometimes is, is misunderstood in our culture. Um, I had a friend one time, a close friend, that confided in me that she was having an affair. This was a long, long time ago, a long time. Almost 40 years ago, but maybe 20, 35, something like that, a long time ago. She said well, she was having an affair. I said, really, it kind of shocked me. And then she proceeded to tell me that her husband... Suspected this affair and that her then we'll call the fellow George. Who had, her husband was really jealous of George. That was only about 19 years old at the time but I, I looked at her and I said he, your husband is jealous of the guy that you're having the affair with. Yeah, he is. But he's not sure about it. I said, but he suspects you're having an affair and he's jealous of that guy. She said, yeah, it's just terrible. I said, but you're having an affair with the guy. You know, you are guilty, right? Well, yeah, but he shouldn't be jealous. I said that he shouldn't be your husband. God is a jealous God. By the way, that's the phrase that got Oprah Winfrey off the track. She couldn't figure out how God would be a jealous God. Well, God is jealous for those that he loves. That it's not an irrational thing. What she was asking of her husband was absurd. Yes, I'm having an affair with this guy, but my husband shouldn't be jealous about it. That doesn't may work in novels and movies, but it doesn't work in real life. Don't try it in real life. It doesn't work that way. But the kind of jealousy that is being spoken of here is burning with envy over that which belongs to someone else. Like the Tenth Commandment about lusting. It's not earnestly desiring that which is yours. You, certainly you should be jealous for the love of the one that you are married to of course you are that jealousy can go into a sin if it gets out of hand of course you know where you get irrational and you start putting tracking devices on your husband's car or something you know without reason (laughs) let's move on to the next one love is not boastful (laughs) love is not boastful you know you can track people on their iphone now did you know that All right. That's pretty easy. Love doesn't brag. You see, these people were bragging about what spiritual gifts they had. Paul said, that's not the way it works. If you're really loving someone, you don't brag about your own spiritual giftedness or anything else. Love is not arrogant. In other words, love does not think more highly of oneself than they ought to think. It does not have an inflated view of their own self-importance. Now, when we see this in the Corinthian context, don't, don't these make a little more sense sometimes? In the Corinthian context, we can see they were thinking of themselves way beyond what they ought to think. They thought much more highly of themselves than they really ought to think. And they had an inflated view of their own self-importance because they had particular gifts. Paul says, no, that's not how it happens. Does not act unbecomingly. This means does not behave in an ill-mannered or in any kind of rude way. Sometimes people have to be abrupt. But rudeness is never an expression of love. Even when things are not going your way, there should be some courtesy and politeness. And that's what this passage is specifically speaking to. If there is a Corinthian situation, it's probably speaking of the Corinthian situation with respect to the way they were abusing the Lord's table and acting in a very rude manner there. Love does not seek its own. Now this is central. This means love is not selfish. By definition, love is not selfish. By definition and by description, it is not selfish. It's always focused on the other person. It's not provoked. This means love is not hypersensitive. It's not easily, love is not easily irritated. Love love doesn't wear the irritation on one's sleeve. And so at the least provocation, someone flies off. I was in a conference one time. This was in, again, a long time ago. It has nothing to do with theology. But I was in a conference, and I, I tapped the person in front of me on the shoulder. She had dropped her pen. And her, I won't say what her name was. Well, her name was Renee. But she had a nickname, Renee. I don't know how it got to be. But I, I tapped her on the shoulder. and said, hey, hey, Rene, here's your pen. She stopped the conference. A couple hundred people there. Stood up, turned around, and yelled at me. I do not like that name. I don't want you to ever call me that name again. you understand? (laughs) Got it. And I never called her that name again. In fact, I didn't go out of my way to speak to her anymore. I was afraid. Well, that's wearing your emotions on your sleeve, your irritation on your sleeve. If she really didn't like the name, all she had to do was later say, Hey, listen, you know, I hate that name. My mom called me that or whatever it was. And I would have never done it again. But you don't stop the conference. Everybody looked around like, what did he do? I did nothing. I just gave her her pen back. That's all it was. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now the temperature goes up. This is equivalent to holding a grudge. This is equivalent to keeping a list, either mental or on paper. It doesn't matter. God's saying you can't keep a list. It's saying when it's over, it's over. And if they've been forgiven, if you've forgiven them, you forgive them. If you forgive them, you don't keep a list. If you don't bring it up next year, two years now, five years down the road, the next time a fight comes up, you don't bring up what they did five years ago. This hits home with most husbands and wives because most of us keep a list. We may not keep it with anybody else, but we keep it with those to whom we're closest. When it's over, it's over. Let it go. You don't take into account the wrong stuff. The word take into account is very similar to the word that is used when... When Paul talks about being justified, in other words, crediting someone to someone's account. In other words, you have a list, and it's got that person's name on it. Okay, that's what they did to me yesterday. This is what they did to me this morning. That's not love. It's not easy. This is a hard passage. This is a convicting passage. This hits us right between the eyes. Because is there anyone in here, don't show your hand, is there anyone in here that's that's making an A so far? I'm not. I already told you. This is something we all have to work on every single day. Does not take into account a wrong suffering. And then then he switches gears ever so slightly again. Does not rejoice with evil. In the Corinthian context, this probably shifts back to chapter 5 where the man was having a highly inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Well, they were rejoicing in that. Paul said, you should be grieved by it. But it's also inclusive of taking pleasure in any wrongdoing. Uh, I notice a lot of films are starting to do that. Have you noticed it? We're starting to be put in a position of pulling for the bad guy. And it's it's subtle, but it's out there. The truth is what grieves the Holy Spirit ought to grieve us. If something grieves God, it ought to grieve us. On the other hand, it rejoices in the truth. So it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but does rejoice in the truth. Love joyfully celebrates truth. Among other things, love joyfully celebrates an openest and honest evaluation of oneself. We need to look in the mirror. That's love. And then finally, this group of four bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, bears all things, essentially means never tires of support. It goes back to the first one, patience again. It never tires. There was a a person I needed to help today. Good night. There's another person I need to help tomorrow. And there was a person I had to help the day before that. But love doesn't doesn't grow weary with that. If the person has the ability to help. Now, sometimes we run out of the ability to help. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Now, this doesn't mean naivete, as some have understood. In its proper context, it means never loses faith. That's what it means by believes all things. It doesn't mean that anything comes across the television you, you accept it as true. That's, that's not the case. It means never loses faith. Love hopes all things, which means it never exhausts hope and endures all things, which means you never give up. All of us have failed at one time or another with respect to love. All of us. But so What? it's time to pick it up and move on. If God gives you life after you failed or after i failed, it's time to pick up and move on. You no, know, God will forgive our failures. Sometimes we need to forgive ourselves. If God's forgiven us, who are we not to accept his forgiveness? This 15-point description of love would have been somewhat foreign to the original audience. And I fear in some cases it's foreign to us Because our culture, too, is very Eros-oriented. And in that sense, for many today, love is more focused upon self-gratification than anything else. I hope you see in these first seven verses that it's all about someone else. This isn't about selfishness. It's about selflessness. True love is selfless, not selfish. Agape. Looks after the best interests of the other person. Agape does not necessarily give in to the desires of another person. Because that may not be love. Anyone who is a parent knows that. Or even an employer knows that. Sometimes saying no is actually the best thing you can do for that person. But it's always selfless, not selfish. True love was the answer to the problems of the church in Corinth. And true love is the answer to the problems that we all face today.